Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm addressing our graduates tonight, but not only them. I'm addressing anybody who has ever faced or is currently facing a, a significant life transition because the graduates certainly are. I mean, many of you know where you're going to work and others of you don't. And Some of you are happy to be leaving and others of you are utterly terrified and, you know, you're mournful actually because you're leaving good friendships and familiar places and, and your future remains uncertain. But whenever we face transition, we hope for We hope for a future in which we are thriving. We hope for a future in which we find ourselves fruitful. Nobody plans to have a future in which they're withering, homeless, you know, or eating ramen every night. I mean, nobody wants that. I mean, some of you are going to, I mean, not the homeless thing, I I hope not, but maybe the ramen thing, but for a while, but really what you want is something grander than that. You want to thrive. And uh, how does thriving occur? How does thriving occur? How do we have a solid future, one that expands us, one that nobilizes us, one that causes us to be compassionate, to be just, to lift others up, to let go of offenses? How do we thrive in God? How do we have a fruitful life? Well, in John chapter 15, Jesus tells us, and it's the result of three things thriving is, And I want to talk about those three things tonight. I want to talk about the right vine, the right attachment, and the right pruning. Because if you have the vine, and you have attachment, and you have pruning, your life really will be beautiful. The the vine first. Jesus begins our passage, and I invite you to follow along in verse 1 with an incredible statement about his sense of self. Jesus understands that he is the way that people get sustenance and nutrition because he likens himself to agriculture, right? He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Now notice the word true there just for a sec uh, because this image about p- of people being likened to not just agricultural forms, but a grapevine in particular did not originate with Jesus. It actually has a rich place in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophetic literature of Isaiah. Early in Isaiah, when he was just starting his prophetic ministry, he was given a a word picture by God. And it was that Israel is like a a wild vine. Israel's a wild vine that did not produce a good yield, but produced sour grapes that could never be eaten or used to make wine. And so uh, the whole book of Isaiah is a prophetic critique of Israel's wild nature, its wild vineness. And here Jesus comes along contrasting himself with his national example by saying, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. That is, I am the one that offers you the minerals, the water, the nutrients that you need. I am the veritable source of life to everyone who claims to be a branch. Now, think about the imagery of vine and branches just for a minute. Uh, It really bespeaks the whole concept of connection, 
of intimate bonding. That's why Jesus says later, abide in me and I in you. There's a, an intertwining that occurs. And I recognized this very early on in my life because in our yard, we had an orchard of uh, peaches and of apples, but we also had uh, grapevines on a trellis, Concord grapes, and we would eat them till we got sick, my brother and I, because they were in the backyard and they were tasty, and that's what we did. Um, but what I noticed is that sometimes the plant needed to be trimmed back a little, but you had to be really careful not to cut the vine, because the vine and the branches were not really separate. They were all entangled with each other, to the point where you couldn't really see where the vine started and stopped in relation to the branches all connected very intimately together. And Jesus uses these uh, images, the New Testament does all the time, about his organic bond with his people. Jesus is, after all, the head of the body that is his church. Jesus is like the husband and the church is the wife. All of these examples of intimacy, of bonding, because the gospel teaches that Christianity is more than you just having different ideas. I mean, we all in this room need different ideas. Every one of us. We need different conceptions. We need different worldviews, a different model, a, a different way of looking at your neighbor and yourself. All of those things are entirely true. But more foundational than that is that God himself wants to bond with you personally. That God wants to engage with you deeply. And that involves all sorts of alterations, but chiefly, he wants a connection with you. That reminder of the organic bond is hugely important for us because we are here in this place not just to uh, celebrate um, certain bits of theology, but we come here to celebrate the God to whom the theology points. It's ultimately about that. Now, just as a pastoral word to you and certainly to myself, I think that most of the hell that's in our lives comes from the fact that we are trusting in the wrong vines. We trust in false vines all the time for our sustenance and nutrition, and those things ultimately cannot provide. In fact, we often confuse the branches in our lives for the vine. We glom on to the wrong things. For a lot of people, that vine has to, happens to be career, especially for men, but not only for men. Uh, they think that if you just have the, the breakthrough, if you really go through the third round of interviews and you get the job at GE or you get the job at Amazon or you work for the law firm or you get into the grad program, that all of life will go swimmingly because you can foretell the future from that place. What you don't know is your fifth year in, they're going to fire you and you're going to work at Arby's. No, I'm kidding. But maybe, maybe, you wouldn't believe how many people in this room have been uh, let go because of economic challenges. They had a path. They were going in this direction. They thought it was all solid, and it laid them flat in an unexpected way. Well, that's a faulty vine. Well, it's also a faulty vine when you, in the midst of a crisis, first run to friends. Friends can be a faulty vine. Now, I don't mean that, uh, that, that your friends aren't helpful and wonderful and lovely and useful and blessings to you. Of course they are. But very often, before we go to God with a real crisis, we run to biased people who are biased in our direction. Have you ever found that to be true, that your friends just simply reify what you think anyway because they're terrified of losing you or your disapproval, right? They don't have the sort of supernal wisdom that you need that supersedes their own from God. And so that can be a faulty vine if you trust it too much. Also, romance. For many people, romance is a vine, you know. I meet many people in the early stages of dating that are a little uh, too dippy and naive. I mean, they're in the flush of love, and they're, uh, they're also uh, eager in numerous ways. And so, uh, but they, they come to the other person, and they essentially, with all their actions and all their speech, are essentially communicating one thing to them. You are now my everything. You are now my everything. You are everything. The problem is they're not. 
They're not. And it's not fair to depend on somebody like that because it makes you very needy and it crushes them with all of your implicit demands. They cannot possibly bear the weight of those divinely oriented expectations because they are not your Christ. But for other people, uh, your vine is how the stock market plays out because that will uh, um, secure your future. Or your, your vine is losing 10 pounds because then you'll finally feel good about yourself. Uh, or your vine is what my vine often is. And what is our vine so frequently? Just ourselves. Especially if we've been hurt in the past and we need a source of sustenance that con- that's consistent. We're not going to trust anybody. We're not going to trust a minister. We're not going to trust a mentor. We're not going to trust a parent. We're not going to trust a friend. It's only me. I can only count on myself at the end of the day. So I'm going to provide everything that I need. Thank you very much. And that works until it doesn't. Because you don't have all that you need to have to get through life in a wise and gracious way. And by the way, when these other things, which really are just branches and not vines, where you demand too much nutrition from them and they don't give you what you want, you get resentful. Why is it that you're not fulfilling my messianic expectations by giving me everything that I want? Well, there's a reason. They're not your Messiah, but Jesus is. They're not your vine, but Jesus is. Jesus says, I am the true vine because he's never going to let you down. He's never going uh, to poison your system. He's never going to withhold from you the very things that you need to survive. Uh, he's not going to keep his forgiveness at bay. He's not going to manipulate you. He's not going to lie to you. He's not going to cheat you. He's going to give you everything that is his to give. And that's why he's the true vine, consistent. Jesus is graciously consistent. And we cannot thrive, friends. We cannot thrive without the right placenta, so to speak. We cannot thrive without the right vine that gives us the nourishment that we require. And so that's something about the right vine that we all need, which is Jesus at the center, uh, the one um, that our lives are intertwined with, wrapped around. Well, there's also right attachment, right attachment. Now, I'm going to be um, speaking here about abiding because Jesus talks a lot about abiding in this passage. Now, um, abiding has this sense of resting in or being near, being close to a very appropriate image of uh, vine and branches. But what does abiding involve? What does it involve? Well, let me say it's complex and I will try to simplify it for us tonight, but I'm going to have to get a little theological with you. A little theological. So um, abiding involves position and experience. It involves position and experience. Abiding or attachment is firstly positional. That is, we are positioned by God as an abider in the vine. We are made a branch by God. Now, if you would please um, read verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read it aloud. Just follow along. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then pay pay attention to this part especially. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Notice that. Already you are clean. Already you're clean. You are a branch, a fruitful branch already. God has declared it so. Already you are clean. Now, by your own moral improvement, by the fact that you only smoked three cigarettes today instead of seven that you had yesterday, because you're watching your language, because darting your eyes away from attractive people. I mean, is that why? No, no, no. The text says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. It's the word of Christ that makes you clean. It's the word of Christ that makes you clean. 
in the end, it's the word of Christ that makes you clean. The redeeming word that God has spoken over your life, ultimately in, for, in the form of the word of the cross, that God has placarded over your existence. That's the reason that you're clean. That's the only reason that you're clean. That's the reason that you're engrafted. That's the reason that you become fruitful. That is the position that you have in Christ. But abiding or attachment is also experiential. That is, we experience abiding in Christ deeply and personally as we obey Christ. This is in verse 9. Please follow along. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. By the way, let's stop there just for a sec. Let's read that again. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Meaning, all of the uh, love that knows no ending the love that is eternal, the love that is pure, the love that is completely committed, the love that goes the distance, the love that is sacrificial, everything between father and son, that mode of loving in which, by the way, no one in your life has ever loved you, no person, is how you are loved. Just as the father loves the son, um, you are loved in that way by God. So we'll continue. Then he says, abide in my love. He wants you to stay in that place. And then verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, some keen readers of scripture understandably scratch their heads at Jesus's words in this text because it sounds like he's contradicting the gospel. (laughs) If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We think, wait a minute, wait a minute. After all, doesn't the gospel teach us that God's love comes first? God's love comes first, and it alone evokes the love from us, right? This is what 1 John teaches in chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. But it seems, in this passage, Jesus is saying, if you want God to love you, you better mean business. Follow me for a while. We'll see how it goes. And if you do very well, then I love you. Is Jesus reversing the gospel trend? Is he saying that our obedience creates God's love for us? Well, friends, Reformation theologians have very helpfully differentiated between positional love and the inner experience of love that is had by each believer. And here is what they, and I think rightly, concluded. The position-oriented love of God is entirely one-sided and all gifted by Christ's free grace on the cross. God has made us branches that bear fruit. That is our status, that is our place, that is our position secured in Christ. But the day in and day out experience of God's love for us, the reformers would also say, is certainly affected by our obedience to Christ. Or to put it differently, we are more awakened to our state of abiding in Christ when we actually obey Christ and swim with the currents of the Holy Spirit rather than against them. You know, if we are soured by our own sins and confess them, if we follow even imperfectly the revealed will of God as set forth in Scripture, we will certainly experience God's love more readily. Now, we know this positional versus experiential difference in love because of how human love works. Think, for example, of marriage, just for a sec. The positional love of marriage is that two persons This man and this woman united in holy matrimony. This um, union becomes a legal contract whether or not the man or woman involved is particularly well-behaved. The contract holds. It's entirely binding that they are to love and cherish one another. 
That is the binding truth, whether they feel it or not. not. That's positional love. They're positioned in that place. But one could imagine, nay, some of us have even experienced, one could imagine that a married couple may on occasion speak rather harshly with one another, have different and annoying idiosyncrasies than one another, lie to one another, even cheat on one another. And those actions or that lack of obedience will certainly affect a person's experience of day-to-day love. Every married person knows that because you hold in one hand the contract, which is legal and binding forever, and you hold on in the other hand your own personal experiences of this imperfect person, right? Here's what I want to say. Similarly, we easily experience abiding love, attachment with God when we are not warring constantly against God. Because when we war against God, our hearts grow hard and hardened hearts are not receptive. Right? When, you, when you're all huffy-puffy, you're all hyper-opinionated and jacked up on adrenaline in some situation where you're really ticked off, zeroing in and focused on the person that you're angry about, telling everybody else about them, and you're planning a conversation in your head how you're going to take them down, are you particularly teachable at that moment? Probably not, because your whole system has been hijacked by mania. Similarly with sin, we become like New Hampshire granite. Our hearts grow hard. And we often can't sense love because we're warring against God himself. When we are in a yielded position, though, that changes. Abiding in the vine, friends, involves both positional love, you are already clean, and experiential love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, thriving is a result, always a result of right attachment, yielding to a superior source. And what I just said was extremely controversial because we live in a day and in an age of the illusion of detachment. I think that's actually the prominent wave that's hitting us right now, detachment, detaching ourselves from vows, from promises, from spouses, from children, from churches, from institutions, from community, from culture. We detach and isolate in order to find our true selves. We detach so that we can you know, concentrate on self-love and self-validation. We functionally change the Lord's prayer day by day into something like this. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The world must acknowledge and adore my desires, my appetites, my truths, my identity, my self-understanding. The only problem is that Christianity teaches the exact opposite of that. Christianity teaches lose yourself in order to find yourself. For those who seek to save their lives will lose them. And those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. That we believe that real thriving comes through obedience to the higher source, not through obedience to the will. Some people say, that's nothing but taskmaster theology, you losing yourself to some higher source. You know what real taskmaster theology is? You being obedient to you. There is no more horrific taskmaster than the one who has sabotaged you more than any other person in the world. We instead, along with the Alcoholics Anonymous program, enjoy step three. Step three is, turning your will and your life over to the care of God. That's when you say, I have run this thing for quite some time and made a hash of it. I think you can do better.
and offering what you have to the Lord. That's what we think real thriving entails. The placing of our wills into the will of God and letting him have his way. So that's something about the right vine, something about the right attachment, and lastly, something about right pruning. This is verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I wish this passage wasn't in the Bible because I don't like the sound of it because I don't like the whole notion of scissors and cutting and cutting things that might give life someday. You know, I became a Christian in many ways. Uh, There's a lot of family of origin stuff in this, but I became a Christian precisely because I thought it offered me an emotional Oxycontin where I wouldn't feel pain anymore. It would sort of anesthetize my complicated emotional life. I thought that would be really great. But come to find out, Christianity involves a lot of pruning and deconstruction because it prophetically challenges all my assumptions that I've worked so hard in life to defend. All of my preconceived ideas about marriage and child-rearing, all of my idiosyncrasies, all of my uh, imaginings, my psychology, my mental life, all of it is being challenged and deconstructed by Christ. I didn't know I was signing up for all this, you know? It's like when Jesus goes to the disciples when they're fishing and says, hey, follow me, and they say, sure, because they had no idea what they were getting into, right? They learned in time. But Christianity involves a lot of this, right? And I think we could errantly deduce that pruning is punishment, that we are pruned because God sees us as horrific sinners. No, what he's saying is, this is the way you're going to bear more fruit. You're bearing fruit now, but you can bear more fruit if certain things in you give way. Life can get even better. You know who discovered this personally was, of course, Peter. The Apostle Peter, that hot-headed, type-A, neurotic fisherman who was at times way too bold and arrogant and other times way too timid and traitorous. He flip-flopped on all sorts of important issues like should the Gentiles go to heaven, little things like that. Um, And each time, what did Jesus do to him? He didn't give up on him. He led him deeper. He led him deeper. He never gave up on him. He said, no, 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 you just don't understand. Walk this way. Learn from me. And that's why the Peter who was on the shore of Galilee could never have stood and spoken with such boldness to 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. But Jesus changed Peter so that he could be the man who on the day of Pentecost offered a word that changed the world. Um, Some of you know the name William Sloan Coffin. He was a famous pastor. Uh, His son very tragically died at age 21 of a car accident, and he was asked to preach at his son's funeral. I can't even imagine the agony that that would entail, but this comes from his sermon, and I relate to it very seriously regarding my own experience of Christianity. This is what he writes. I, I mentioned in my sermon now the healing flood of letters I've received from you. Some of the very best and easily the worst came from my fellow reverends, a few of whom proved that they knew their Bibles better than the human condition. Look, I know all the right biblical passages, including blessed are those who mourn, and my faith is not a house of cards. I know these passages are true. But the point is this. While the words of the Bible are true, sometimes grief makes them hard to receive. But like God, Scripture is not around for anyone's protection, just for everyone's unending support. Minimum protection, maximum support. I swear to you, I would not be standing here were I not upheld. 
I love that. Minimum protection. You know, that's what I got into this gig for, protection. And can I tell you now after the fact, or uh, not after the fact because I'm not quite dead, but um, <laughs> during the fact, how, how glad I am that God has not answered every one of my prayers for a force field, that I would be made invincible to every hurt and every slight, because God, in his opportunistic way, has used them all to make me into a version of myself that hopefully is a little brighter than the version I would have been otherwise. Minimum protection, maximum support. Friends, we thrive when we are joined to the right vine with the right attachment and the right pruning. So the biblical advice to you, my fellow branches, is to wrap yourselves tightly around that vine, to be nourished by the Christ who loves you to death, and go to churches where Christ crucified and risen is the resilient center of the Christian enterprise. Stay close to the sacraments which lovingly jolt us into a place of faith. You'll experience that today as we drink together from the fruit of the vine. Stick close to the Bible in your own conscious contact with God and have proximity, close, loving proximity to those precious people in your life that reflect Christ well. And as we wrap around our source, we thrive. You will thrive. You will be fruitful, for you are already clean. And then, friends, your joy will in fact be full. Amen. Amen.